You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. I'm hoping it will one day pay me. And I'm Mer Lafferty. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 115, When Not Writing Is Writing. Well, welcome back, listeners. We are so fortunate to have another wonderful guest with us this week. I feel like we've had just an astonishing um, array of guests, bang, 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 this whole summer and autumn. It's been amazing. So please introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell them who you are, what it is that you create. Uh, Hi, I'm Mer Lafferty. I'm a podcaster and science fiction writer. And uh, most recently, I have... uh, started podca- uh, releasing Station Eternity, uh, which is book one of the Midsolar Murders series, and book two of the Midsolar Murders will be out, or is out, I'm not sure when this is running, uh, November 7th, 2023. So that's book two, more space murders, and um, more wild aliens being silly. So if I have my math right, that will be, that will have been yesterday, awesome. I think. Or maybe today. Try and just cast forward in time. It'll be yesterday. Excellent. So listeners, you can get it, Ian, now. Yay. Finish listening to this podcast and then go get that. I like the way you think. And I just want to say, Station Eternity, a absolute delight. Highly recommend. Thank you. And it goes without saying, I'm really looking forward to Chaos Terminal and where you go. Thank you. Yeah, I, I've been, it's kind of silly because it's taken me decades to realize this. My husband thought I was being was kidding when I told him I finally figured it out is that uh, a lot of times my writing style is me taking something literally to a very far extreme and then saying, what if? So the concept behind the Midsolar Murders is the fact that I was just, I really enjoy amateur sleuth murder mysteries. I really do. But the fact that nobody ever points out being your friend is really dangerous. Or being your friend is dangerous <laughs> when to all of my family. Or I don't want to go to that birthday party you're invited to. And, you know, that's the logical thing. It's like people die around you. I know you solve it. You're very smart. It's not your fault. But it's dangerous and scary to be your friend. And I was thinking, if that were me, I would be very sad. I would not want to be around anybody. One of my favorite flashbacks in the first book is when her boyfriend, Mallory's boyfriend, is trying to uh, propose at a pro basketball game. And they go up on the Jumbotron. And that's when everybody in the uh, area, in the arena, sees the the dead body behind them. And which kind of ruins the proposal, ruins the relationship. Mallory's got to deal with the hus- with the boyfriend leaving and her having to stay and solve the murder. It's just like, it's very bad. So when I was thinking, what would I do if that were me? I like to think about science fiction stuff. Um, so immediately I thought like, for some reason, what popped into my mind was Babylon 5. Big space station, dip- diplomacy, all alone in the night. Love it. Absolute favorite. So I thought, what if there was a space station where humans couldn't go because we're too new or something, and she petitioned the station, hey, I'd like to be away from humans, but I don't want to be a complete solitary scared person. Scared person? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, unhappy solitary person. So can I go be around aliens and see what happens? And so the, the station is sentient, and she's like, okay, because I really, really hate red tape and bureaucracy. That's not a plot to me. I real, I mean, I hate it so much that I really hated the movie Contact because it ends with a Senate hearing. And it's like, it was so amazing. <laughs> and then it's like, it's a, it's a room full of suited men going, yeah, we don't believe you. I, I hated that. My husband got angry with me because I was walking out hating the movie so much because of that bureaucracy. I don't like bureaucracy. I don't like it in my stories. So she says, can I come? And the station's like, sure. So that's not the plot. The plot (laughs) is her trying to make it on the station. 
And then because the world doesn't really revolve around her, the station eventually says, hey, let's let humans aboard. And then humans come. And of course, that's when the murders start. And oh, no. so uh, that's that's pretty much book one. It's, it's really, it's the murder mystery, but it's also her trying to figure out where she is in the world. Because, you know, if you mm. hang a lampshade on the fact that uh, people die around her and no one knows why, and it's a science fiction book, you probably need to talk about why that is. So part of that is is exploring uh, her life there. So yeah, that's what the Midsolar Murders is about, and Chaos Terminal is more space and more murder. Well, that sounds delightful. I'm going to have to get these. I've been on a big murder mystery kick like this entire oh, year. But most of what I read are like historical murder mysteries. We need more, more genre fiction oh, yeah. murder mysteries. We need more sci-fi and fantasy murder mysteries, I feel. And not only because that way I will have more things to read. Or I will have more, th- more things to write. It's, you and I can be totally selfish about this. I, I really on board with this. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Yeah. Mutually advantageous selfishness. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. <laughs> well, tell us, what is something that you love about world building? Your, your sort of favorite thing to dig into when you are crafting new worlds, new settings, new universes, or, you know, future versions of our, of our own. Yeah, I think it's... Um... I think I was talking to Adam Rakunas a couple of years ago about just writing something big and stupid. And that's, that's specifically how he put it was big and stupid. And I think sometimes as science fiction and fantasy writers, we could do anything, but we don't. And I think some people like Kiz Johnson and the short story spar is always where I go. when I think of truly alien stuff. Oh, spar. A lot of content warnings. (laughs) If you're squicked by anything, don't go read it. But if you're curious, it is a fascinating story. And you want to read about alien aliens? So alien. Those, that's an alien alien. Yeah, no, that's really one of my favorite short stories ever. Spoiler. No, we learned, we learned nothing about the alien by the end of the story. But the whole story is interacting with an alien. But, uh, like, bringing, going somewhere. Fucking, fucking is where it's going. That's where it's going. I think that's the first line, isn't it? She fucked the alien or the alien fucked her. And it's... Oh, the first line has stayed with me because it's brilliant. In the tiny lifeboat, she and the alien fuck relentlessly. Endlessly. Thank you for the clarification. (laughs) And the whole time, they're just... She doesn't learn anything. And they just have nothing better to do than fuck all... (laughs) The time. Oh, wow. But in thinking about that and thinking about alien aliens, I mean, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, but doing the whole, I'm going to take exotic people from other areas of the earth and make them into my aliens. It's just, it's A, not respectful. (laughs) And B, it's not trying real hard. It's not going far enough. I mean, I had to deal with, I, I had to bring up the fact that, wait a minute, does everybody revere a dead body the way humans do and uh or do they even care do they even think about evidence the way humans do like they the something happens to the body in the first book and the aliens are like what is your problem and she's like that's evidence they're like we don't care (laughs) it's and so uh what's interesting is is just seeing who cares about the things that humans care about but like I said, I like to take things to a, a very weird and literal end. So I just tried to think about honest aliens. There's an alien who's not very smart, but will eventually have a great deal of power. And she's completely honest about not being smart and eventually having a great deal of power. And she has become a fan favorite and my favorite character. I've been trying to sell book two to already fans of the series by saying Tina learns diplomacy. And hopefully that will get them on board but you know it's it's taking into account how they communicate how they view sex death a dead body and just trying to think what is not the way we do it and by we i mean humans because i really trying not to go into and steal from other non uh anglo-saxon protestant uh communities but which is hard because, again, thinking of something that no one's ever thought of before is kind of hard. <laughs> That's technically what makes it alien. So not going as far as fucking the alien constantly throughout the story, but also, you know, going beyond someone else with a forehead ridge. 
the the vast array of prosthetics that we can apply to the skull defining the the range of yeah. alienness yeah <laughs> that is fun and, and and that i feel like presses the edges of so much of what we talk about on this podcast about like not making assumptions and presumptions about things mm-hmm. like death you know different kinds of species is death even a thing or or does consciousness you know sort of just transmute from one part of a collective mind you know all there's all kinds of possibilities but it is it's interesting to step so totally out of a a human mind frame mm-hmm. to try to get into some of that so that's really cool thank you <laughs> well we're here today to talk about the difference between writing and not writing and how sometimes not writing is writing and sometimes not writing is avoiding writing which i think all writers do from time to time <laughs> What? No, never. Absolutely not. No one on this podcast, certainly. I have never spent ages coming up with Instagram uh, aesthetics rather than writing a book. I would never do that. Um, <laughs> no, that's process. It's process. But so let's sort of start at the base of what, how much of writing we think is the actual drafting part that, you know, if we imagine a person sitting at their computer, banging out the words, but in seat, how much of that is writing and and how much stuff is outside of that moment for for y'all it's interesting for me because i realized that that i don't get the where do you get your ideas question very much and i almost never get the i've got a really cool idea you should write it let's split the money thing but what i get oh that's so lucky <laughs> uh, yeah i know i'm really lucky what i do get <laughs> is how long does it take you to write a book and i realize there's no answer to that because when do you start the clock? It's, it's, you know, I've got, and I'm assuming a lot of writers have a number of ideas floating around their heads, marinating. And sometimes they, sometimes they feel like little balloons and sometimes they bump into each other and think, Oh, that could be the same story. And now my idea just got bigger. And, you know, you could try a short story. You could try a character sketch And then you say, talk to your agent and realize you had a misunderstanding about when your deadline was and you've got two months. So is it two months to write the book or do you take into account the fact that you honestly were marinating some ideas and you had a plot line and you did not start that book on August 1st, 2023? It was before that, but that's when the writing started, hypothetically. So I was about to say, that sounded very specific. uh, Yeah, so... uh, I don't, I never know when to start, to say I started. And do, mm-hmm. do you go from beginning to end on the rough draft or do you take into account your uh, edits? Because sometimes an edit is easy. In 2021, I thought I'd lost all skill writing because I had two projects going on and both of them required extensive edits. Not like, not, not just a little bit. It was like one of them I had to write from scratch twice rewrite from scratch so totally rewrite totally write three times and the other one just needed a lot of work and I thought if I can't even do a readable first draft then I'm what am I it's it was very depressing and then you know with chaos terminal the book that's coming out or came out yesterday um it it felt more like a reasonable book experience that I've had before so you know, here are some thoughts. Here's something you may not have think, thought about. Here's something I'd like to see expanded, things like that. Not <laughs> redo everything. So, you know, if I think about the projects, one of which was Station Eternity and the other one, which uh, was the Ophelia Network, which was an Audible original. Um, I can't even tell you how long it took me to write those, especially from concept to final draft okayed. So, I never know how long it takes to write a book. It's it's so nebulous that, and, it, and, it, and you know, it's a question, especially aspiring writers want to ask because they want to think in my future, how long is it going to take me to write this? And you don't know. You can try for a thousand words a day, but that is like scratching the surface of what it takes to write a book. So get into the habit of writing, but you gotta know, considering we're, we have a topic here and I'm going far afield from it. I had an MRI today and I was told I had to sit in a really boring tube and listen to a lot of loud noises for 20 minutes. And I just tried to brainstorm a new novel. 
And so I'm not keeping track, but those 20 minutes count as writing because I was just brainstorming a character. What situation was she in? How is she going to dislike the first person she sees and eventually find a work, a work around to work together with them, et cetera? Yeah, that was, that was work time. If I could, I would bill somebody, but that's not the way our, our world works. <laughs> so, you know, that was writing. I think as someone with ADHD, I, it's one of those things where I know academically that getting away from the computer and taking a walk does help you come up with an, like breakthrough blocks. It's hard to make myself do that, even though I know that it works, but things like that. It's like getting away from the computer when you don't know what to write. There's nothing more frustrating than just trying to bang your head against the monitor and not know what to write when really all you need is to go move away, look at nature, clean something. Or your mind loves it when you're cleaning because the mind doesn't have to think. So it can go through various things subconsciously. That's why people get ideas in the shower and get ideas when they're cleaning and get ideas when they're driving. It's because the body's just just going through the motions. You don't have to think about what you're doing. And so your mind is free to go through some other things that you might have been too stressed about at the computer to think about. I like this advice to remind yourself that writing is not writing, but I have a podcast for beginning writers and what worries me is this can lead to welcoming procrastination, which is not writing. (laughs) And I've been talking a lot. So you go, Marshall. (laughs) You reminded me of all the, you know, tactics that I know I need to use to like write effectively that I then forget to do like, you know, playing one song on repeat so that my the rest of my brain shuts off and turning off the internet so I'm not distracted by shiny things that will, you know, <laughs> keep me from actually paying attention. But turning off the internet is lonely. I know. What if something happens? Exactly. You don't want to miss <laughs> the big Twitter event that happened that day because, well, you do now. <laughs> but... <laughs> Honestly, in so many ways, the death of Twitter is going to be good for us all. It really is. Fair. It really is. Fair. I mean, not good in other ways, but good in some ways. Yeah. It'll be healthier for us in the long run, I hope. But <laughs> There you go. But yeah, I mean, in terms of how long does it take me to actually draft the novel, if we're talking strictly from when I start you know, start the actual drafting process to when I have a finished, clean first draft. That's usually, it can be three to eight months, maybe. I mean, usually it averages about five, but it depends. Mm -hmm. And, but that doesn't take into account that I wrote the outline to that novel two years ago, and it's been, you know, fermenting in my brain ever since. And, you know, I only start that writing process when it's quote unquote ready which, you know, the fastest I've even done that, because so many of these things have been, you know, percolating for years and years, was with Velocity. And that, you know, even still was a three-year process. Yeah. One thing I did realize in my uh, writing post-lockdown mentality was, as a pantser slash gardener, gardener's so much nicer to say than pantser, but I think a lot of people don't get it if you don't say it along with architect. <laughs> but, no, I'm with you on gardener. I've been trying to make that a thing for forever. Yes, I'm totally yeah. with you on that metaphor. But uh, it's funny because that's how I've always felt. Like I've just brought up like this person has an uncle. That's all she says in chapter two. And like the next book, I'm like, there's an uncle out there. I could use that. And then I feel really smart. <laughs> but I realized that one thing I have to do is find out where to start. And that may require me to start and stop a lot. And I try to remember, I think it was Elizabeth Bear that told me there are no wasted words. If you start and go and realize I'm going in the wrong direction, You've learned something. You're going in the wrong direction. That's learning something. That's okay. And you can, you maybe you discovered something about a character you could use on your next start or whatever. But keep in mind that I have to find, sometimes I have to find a place to start the book. And I have to allow myself that time. Is that time I put into my schedule again? 
I don't know. No, I'm totally with you on that. I was talking to a um, a group about um, NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, and talking about how, like, for me so often, what a nano will teach me if I don't manage to, quote unquote, win, if I don't manage to get to 50K, if I, if I only make it partway and then go, you know what, this isn't working. Sometimes what it's telling me is that that project isn't quite done baking in my head mm-hmm. yet. It's, it's not quite ready to be written yet. And that's okay. I, I learned a thing by trying it. And it gave me some time to think about it more and figure out where the problems are. And it's taught me something. And then I also told them that, like, when it comes to, especially for nano, like, all words count. Yeah. Like, anything you write during that oh, month, yeah. count it. It counts as a word. And that includes things where, like, if you're trying to get unstuck, um, I love to go to my world building to try to get me unstuck, mm-hmm. to, like, explore a different location or to ask myself some question about the world and make a character react to it. Like, there's a holiday coming up. What is it? Mm-hmm. Why is it happening? What does my character think about it? And just write that out. And it might not be anything that I'm ever going to use in the actual, you know, like, drafted manuscript, but it might help me find an answer I didn't even know I needed. It might tell me something about the character or about the world that eventually will find its way into that drafting. So yeah, for me, like all of those explorations, and I am a, I'm a wildly just organic writer, I have to chase all kinds of side paths. And sometimes those side paths turn into the main path, and I wasn't expecting them to. To me, that's all, that's all writing, that's all worth it. That's all worthwhile time. Even if it's not something that any human but me is ever going to actually see. It's all part of the process. Right. It's a wildly inefficient process. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it's so funny. People will ask, you know, like, people will talk about being fast writers or slow writers. And most of the time, I'm a fast writer. I can generate lots of words quickly. Are they words that end up being in the final manuscript? Like, can, can I actually get to a final manuscript quickly? Yeah. Mm, that's a different question. <laughs> manuscript. Yeah. Yeah. I think you were telling on yourself right there, Cass. <laughs> I know. I did. That was a completely Freudian slip there. That was... <laughs> that's good though. I'm actually gonna start using that manuscripts. I'm gonna. That's, I like it. I like it a lot. Coin that word, trademark Cass Morris manuscripts. I like it. <laughs> it's yours. You should have it. Start calling that folder in my Scrivener project. <laughs> like, this is this is something I know I'm not gonna use. It's a manuscript. Exactly. It's perfect. Well, what are some of the other things that we do that are not writing but writing? Like, what does that sort of story and project engagement look like when it doesn't look like? just churning out words onto a draft. What are some of the other things that, that we do when, when we're doing that? And I also like, um, you know, where, where does that happen sometimes? Because I love that you mentioned, like, the shower, the car, like, all these bizarre places. It made me remember when I was very young, when I first started driving, um, before the age, you know, this is before cell phones even. Well, no, I guess I had, I had like, one of the old giant things because my parents were paranoid and wanted to make sure they could find me if I died in a car crash or something. But they didn't have smartphones. The they didn't have you know, voice I mean. to text or anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How dare they care if I'm alive? Um, <laughs> but my dad got me for the car, like a really ancient, like voice recorder thing, so that if I had ideas in the car, I could talk to myself. Oh, in that's the car so sweet. And hold on to those ideas. <laughs> it was really sweet of him. I love that. I think he also didn't want me trying to like you know use pen and paper while driving, oh, which fair. fair. Um, <laughs> But it was really sweet. It was one of those, you know, just like ancient little, very simple, like two button things. Because I I love to do that in a car. I'm actually going to do it this weekend. I, I am taking myself on a long drive out to the mountains. And I'm going to think on the way there. I'm going to put on a project specific playlist and just let my mind go where it needs to go. And then I'm going to get to this location that I'm going to and open my laptop and hopefully churn some kind of words out. And I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't done this in a while and I'm very excited. <laughs> See, that's something I've I've wondered about that I haven't really had the desire to do, which has come up. I know a lot of people are doing playlists for their projects now. And I think for me, I would I would feel like that was procrastination for me. I mean, for you, I don't know how long it took you to do that. And I don't know if it took you away from your book, you know, in a procrastination way. But for me, I would think. That's not for me. I know a lot of songs that have inspired me, but yeah, I just, I'm just curious how you approach that. Is it something like, are you looking at a playlist going, Hey, this reminds me of that project. Or do you start out with the idea that I'm going to make a playlist for this book? That's what I do. I, I am, I'm a inveterate maker of playlist. My um, title thing has like 
250 or something. I have an absurd number of playlists on there because I make them for projects. I make them for characters. I make them for specific moods. Um, And so it's usually part of my beginning process when I'm still just sort of like percolating on a project. Among the things I will do is start making a playlist for it and start thinking about like, and, and there's usually multiple playlists. There's the one that gets me in the mood for thinking about it, which is usually songs with lyrics. They're songs that like, you know, reflect a character, reflect who these people are. And those are good for listening to in the car when I'm trying to think about these things. And then I have to have another playlist that is only instrumentals. That's for while I'm actually writing the damn thing, because I can't write and listen to things with lyrics at the same time. Right. <laughs> it, 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 my brain just sort of can't can't quite process it. Um, so I've got like just all kinds of playlists for even different writing different pieces of a novel. When I was doing the Oven cycle and trying to do the climactic sequence of book three, I had a playlist that was literally entitled just those two tracks because I had realized there were exactly two tracks from the Game of Thrones soundtrack that were doing it for me, that were working. They were long enough that they didn't feel repetitive. Um, and and they it's the Night King and Light of the Seven. For anyone who knows those soundtracks well, you'll know exactly what those are. And I just put those two songs on repeat. And I think I listened to them for a hundred hours, probably, while trying to figure out this final sequence of the book. So for me, it's very much part of the process. It doesn't feel like procrastination. It is something I have to do to get started. And it is something that actively helps me while I am actually drafting. Playing with aesthetics, on the other hand, you know, creating mood boards and vision boards, I know I'm procrastinating when I do that. Yeah. <laughs> I justify it by saying, oh, it's it's like adver- it's marketing. This is marketing I'm doing. I'm going to put them on Instagram and it's marketing. Liar. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> or if you do, it's not making enough of a difference. You're just lying to yourself and you're just playing around with pretty pictures. But I know for some people, the, the vision board is essential. So like it's we're all you know, we all have different things that we have to do to get ourselves into the writing place, I think. Do you share your playlist with your readers? I have a couple of times. Yes, the the main Oven Cycle playlist, I think, is somewhere on my website. And then I shared one specifically that was like specifically for the elemental magic. And it was a very tight playlist of just nine songs for the magic for for each of the elements. So it was um, I've done a couple of those. But yeah, I realized for Station Eternity, it just would have been two bands and almost all their songs. (laughs) I don't know if that counted (laughs) as a playlist or not. Whatever works for you. Mine are wildly eclectic because, like, I I listen to bizarre things. I don't even follow specific artists. I'll get, like, one song from somebody and be like, yeah, I like that, and then not listen to anything else they've ever made. There's stuff from Broadway show tunes in there. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, madrigal tunes thrown in there. There's 60s hits. It's absolute chaos. The the tunes with the playlists with with lyrics, with, like, character-specific stuff are chaos playlists. Um, Whereas the writing ones tend to be more moody aesthetic they're in a certain tone they're in a certain you know style and tend to be more coherent mm-hmm. <laughs> than my character derived chaos playlists i remember at some point i forget which book it was for but the publicist i was assigned at the time was like "Ooh, if you have a playlist that you use for writing this book we can put that out and have that be part of the part of the publicity and i'm just like that would just be you know shake it off played a thousand times because i you know that's what i do when i'm reading the book like there's no there's no sense or or thematic (laughs) aspect to to what i listen to when i'm writing a book it's just one song yes i I mean i will do that and just let it be you know repeated repeated and repeated that just 400 times yeah yeah. and it shuts my brain off and i can write i find that uh my favorite movies instrumental soundtracks are what I listen to to write, but I don't care what they are. It's always like The Matrix and Mad Max and uh, Star Wars uh, 7, 8, and 9 soundtracks. And just all those all, all those songs tend to just put me in a good place to write. I, I feel good enough to remember that I saw a really good story on the screen, but not too distracted to let it uh mess me up see the star wars ones would mess me up because i can probably play the movie in my head to the soundtrack and that would be a problem when my (laughs) favorite songs come on sometimes it's sometimes i get distracted (laughs) by remembering the scene but sometimes i remember the feeling the scene gave me which Mm. is better that is better yeah that's way better 
Um, another type of soundtrack I find really useful are soundtracks to things like Planet Earth and other nature documentaries because mm. they tend to have these like big sweeping scores that are much less like tied to a plot or anything that happens in, in my head. So those those tend to be really good. Um, good ones for me. Every time I've tried to use a movie score, like I feel like it should work for my brain, but it never does. You did mention like what other things, and I, I hesitate to say this because, like I said, this is something that can easily slide into procrastination. And for non-writers, they're probably already thinking that I'm full of shit, but I doubt they're listening to this right now. I have gotten so much, so many ideas, mostly about character design, but a major plot thread <laughs> of my book Six Wakes came from computer games. So I've taken a lot of character notes from some of my favorite characters in computer games, but this was this was a moment of, I, I can't even describe what it was, but I'm like, I told the truth and perhaps I shouldn't have. But uh, at the Philip K. Dick Awards, when my book was up for the award, Gordon Van Gelder came up to me and asked me if my cloning from Six Wakes was inspired by, and I can't even remember what classic SF book he said. And I said, no, it's from the computer game FTL. <laughs> he did not like that, I bet. And he kind of looked disappointed and walked away. And I'm like, I probably should have handled that a little bit better, <laughs> but I can't bullshit my way through a book I have not read. Right. So, <laughs> but it's like, it's true. I played FTL and it's a, it's like a spaceship sim. You're trying to go through the galaxy and stay alive to get to some big battle at the end. There's no, there's very little plot. There's a little bit of plot, but there's very little plot. But what it does do is you can outfit your ship in different rooms diff with different capabilities. And the cloning bay, you could either have a med bay or a cloning bay. And... The cloning bay just brings back your people when they die. They don't reproduce your people to, say, spec out your entire ship with people. It just brings the dead back to life after they die. And I thought, I'm sure they're out there, but I had not really heard a story that treated cloning like that. I mean, you know, there's the, I'm going to make the double me, and then I'm going to murder someone while I am... I have my I'm my own alibi or I'm just gonna make a whole bunch of me and there's the plot but it's like no you can only clone when you die and how could that change your story so that's you know that was a key point in my book so that that was and that was from a video game and I've gotten a lot of character stuff for video games and I really like games with a lot of stories I I mean I hope other writers do this. This is something that I'm kind of, I'm getting embarrassed about because... I have at least one writer friend who very much does. Well, yeah. I, I create headcanons about things that I don't know the <laughs> answers to. And this... Valid. Completely valid. This is ridiculous. This is slightly embarrassing, but it's true. I have been uh, working out a lot lately to the Apple Plus Fitness app. And if you don't know the app, it has trainers doing it's not it's not live like i think peloton is but it's it's trainers they do a different uh thing every week and you can get like a 20 minute yoga thing or a 45 minute yoga thing and they've got yoga and rowing and h-i-i-t and uh treadmill and pilates and strength training but they have people behind them one of them is just doing it, doing what the trainer's doing, and the other person is the modifier if you're not that strong or not that flexible or not that uh, good at doing it. But those people are the trainers from other classes. And so I'm sitting here going, okay, so you from treadmill, you get to be in the yoga class. Do they ask for it? Do they get chosen? And who has to do the modified ones? Like you want to, you know, like you're in the strength class, but you want to go to yoga and show your fans how bendy you are, but you get like the modified version and you can't bend near as, I mean, I'm wondering like, what are they thinking? And maybe I'm just trying to distract myself from my own workout, but I, I'm kind of making headcanon about these people. I'm not going as creepy enough to do like fanfic. 
Also, I've got work to do. That's what I was about do. to say. I wonder if there is I'd Apple pro- Apple Fitness fan fiction. I'm, probably, I'm scared to look. I'm probably. Scared to look. <laughs> I mean, RPF RPF crosses some lines. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But I mean, at the same time, and I mean, I am not advocating for real person slash in saying this, but at the same time, when you meet somebody that you don't you know you've had no previous interaction with and that there's something strange and interesting about them that's mysterious there there's almost an instinct to create a narrative about what that what that is and you know and you want to explore that even you know you don't want to cross ethical lines but at the same time you some there are things about people that make you go huh what's the story behind that and if you don't want to necessarily ask mm-hmm. them your brain will yeah will just create them any create that story anyway sometimes there's a weird thing about my dentist that i was gonna make fun of i'm serious his his name his professional name is like john quote-unquote brad shepherd and i'm like why the quotes if you're brad just be brad shepherd if you want your friends to call you brad why do your patients need to see this brad thing and it sounds really terrified it sounds really (laughs) rude like i i went there today and i'm looking up and i'm saying john quote yeah Yeah, why why the quotes why the quote is your name not really brad i and I don't know how to ask these questions with a man who's going to be having sharp instruments inside my <laughs> mouth. So all I do is think about it. And then I was going to make him a, a dentist character with a weird name like that. And then as they're being very kind and asking me about my books and what I do for a living when my next book's coming out, I'm like, I probably shouldn't make fun of him in my next book. Probably. I'm not going to make fun of the dentist in my next book. I wanted to, but he's very nice and he's got sharp instruments inside my mouth. So I'm at the dis- disadvantage here, but it's a weird it's name. It's a wise choice. It's, that is strange. That that raises so many questions. I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote some headcanon like, about how it? that. Did his parents do that to him? I, yeah, I have, exactly. I have questions. <laughs> is, is, is any part of your name Brad? Is it just, yeah. So, yeah. And I probably should have said another name. No, I did say another name. That's not his name. I just made up other names. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But like, I, I'm already thinking Goodness. like, was he in dental school? <laughs> and his name, you know, is John something. And and the teacher just started calling him Brad, and that stuck. And he's like, "Fuck, I'm Brad now." <laughs> just had to run with it. Just... Yeah. <laughs> but still, that's who I am now. But still, my legal name isn't Murr. People started calling me Murr when I was young, and. It became my name. It's just my name. There's no quotes. There's there. It's just it's just there. And it's like it, it's 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 the John quote unquote Brad. I that's what I don't get. His name could be no, it Squiggles. Just, it, it calls attention to it in such a strange way. Yes, that's, that's wow. it exactly. If you just tell me your name's is Doctor Squiggles Shepherd, I'd be like, cool name, dude. Let's go. But no, it's like <laughs> it's completely. American white man name, and yet you made it weird. How? How did he make it weird? It's a gift. Why? It really is. Anyway, I got off on a big tangent. I'm sorry. Oh, no. We love big tangents. The, it does remind me that in Austin, the number one vasectomy doctor is, in fact, Dr. Dick Chop. That is, in fact, his legal name. And he just went with it. No. Yes. No. No, yeah, it's totally true. No. You think people have said maybe you want to go by Richard, and he's like, "Nope, oh nah, no, no." Nah. He totally leans into it. Oh like, yeah, like their shirts. It's I got chopped by Doctor Chop and stuff like that. Oh, and... I got my chop at Doctor Dicks. Like seriously? Yeah. Oh, the uh, the the comedy musician uh, Worm Quartet got his visectomy at uh, from a Doctor Stop S T O P P. And he wrote a ballad about it. It's the Ballad of Dr. Stops. I recommend people look that up because I think he won an award for that song. See, people look at like Shakespearean and Restoration comedies with the aptronyms and think that's just ridiculous. No one would ever be named, you know, Dr. Money Grubber. But <laughs> and yet we like, yeah, 
we have names that are that are in fact describing what someone does so restoration comedians were not that far off god the restoration comedians would have killed for a dr dick job oh, yeah. like oh that's just handing them material on a platter there's a funeral home in Durham. Wildly off topic. Oh, yeah. There's a funeral home in Durham that's, uh, I think, I don't know how they pronounce it, but essentially it, the family name is Am I Gone? A-M-I-G-O-N-E. Am I Gone? <laughs> oh, God. This is glorious. Yeah. Rowena, this is what happens when you're not here, by the way. <laughs> so sorry. I, I, am, I am encouraging the getting off topic. Talk. You are. It's This is what Marshall and I are chaos Muppets, and without our order Muppet here, we... <laughs> But you know, we're, this is what happens. We're talking we spend about 10 minutes weird talking shit. About, we don't write. We this is not writing. Shit. And I can bring it back in, yeah. which is that these are all the sorts of things. This is the mulch in which our gardens grow. Yeah. These are the things that, you know, living a life gives you the experience <laughs> and perhaps the slightly twisted mind yeah. to use in your writing. So how how about world building specifically? You know, not just talking about like drafting or figuring out plots, but how does world building specifically benefit from not writing, writing time. And for me, I think so much of it comes out of just like the learning I have done throughout my life, and especially the historical learning I have done throughout my life. You know, you were saying before, like, when does a project start? Like, did my oven cycle start yeah. when I began writing that draft? Or did it begin the first time I thought, hey, Rome would be a neat place to put a fantasy novel? Or did it start when I started taking Latin in the seventh grade, mm -hmm. right? Like, all these things form the mulch. Or when you were talking about, you know, playing video games, I am not allowed to play Civilization while I am actually trying to draft something because it will absolutely become an escape, <laughs> a way to spend many hours not writing. Yeah. But all of the games of Civilization I've played since the age of 12 have helped me think about, you know, like, how is a society structured? How do cities build? How do networks of resources get built? It's one of the things that has informed how I think about all of that. And that definitely fits into my world building. It fits into how I think about maps and, and how people choose to build a society. All that stuff, all these things we do that we may not even be consciously processing at the time as, oh, I'm thinking about world building now, becomes part of, of all of that. Yeah. I, I sometimes wish I could go back in time and, you know, I'd tell myself a lot of things, but specifically around about this, I would say, I wanted to get an English degree because I liked writing. I should have gotten a history degree because learning how to tell a story. I mean, maybe I'm speaking from an area of privilege because I've always enjoyed telling stories. But really, it's like I hear about cause and effect historically. And I, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that, that you know, it's, it's all stories about the one of a horseshoe nail. It's, it's, it's all about it. And it always just baffles me. And I love it when other people can do this. I can't do it. I can't write the political thing of, you know, somebody gifted somebody else. What was it? A metal ax and ruin the entire society. It's like, I, I heard a story about the, I don't even want to retell it because I don't know if I get it right, but it was a story about a metal ax and a tribe of people that, it kind of a gift messed them up. I wish I could think that way. And I think if I'd studied history, I would be better off thinking that way. And, you know, as a result, I do like fun escapism without a whole bunch of really deep <laughs> political layers, which there's a place for my work too. But I kind of wish I could delve down deep into things like that. Yeah, I too, like I wasn't, I was an English major history minor, and I sort of wish I'd reversed that because like the amount of time I spent studying 19th century poetry that I did not care about, I could have been spending that time learning more weird history yeah. things. Yeah. And like learning, learning weird history things is the best. History is just people having sex and being violent. Like that's, that's most of what it is. I don't know why people think history is boring. <laughs> It's humans being human in the most human-y ways possible. And I think history is boring so because some historians don't lean into the sex and violence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mistake. Huge mistake, always. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's where the juice is. But I think, like, I, I know we've talked to people on this podcast, too, who, like, for them, it's, it's science. It's learning the weird science, mm -hmm. right? It's learning the weird biology facts, which is not a thing my brain does very well. I wish it did that better. I'd be better at doing, like, science fiction-y things, I think. But... 
that's where they get their juice or like weird physics things um especially for like space travel and stuff all these things like whatever your interest is chase it y'all like find the weirdness in that and bring it into your world building also make friends of people who do understand the things that you don't i mean i did get some i did talk to an astrophysicist friend of mine about six wakes and basically i just cleared a couple of things like is this possible is this feasible rather but really what she gave me was you want to know what blood does in zero g and i said yes i do yes (laughs) and then i made a very gory chapter one of six wakes and it was lots of fun and i used almost everything she told me and then for uh, something else I was working on, I went back to her and talked about some more zero-G things um, that might or might not happen with fire and blood. Yeah, it's, it's, if, if you didn't get that, if you didn't get the politics or the history or the uh, science, then just make friends. Because book two is heavily influenced by Ursula Vernon, who has created great joy in herself by telling me the most uncomfortable animal facts she possibly can. <laughs> I, I can imagine that she is just full of those, yeah. that yeah. she can just rattle them off. I'm not, I'm not telling the best story. She'll tell you. Get her on and have her tell you. But no, I, I, I she has put me in a bad position with the stories of the hyenas. But um, Oh, God. But yeah, usually friends like Ursula are great to have. Well, her Hugo speeches have certainly been memorable <laughs> yes they have yes those have been delightful yeah you want you want to you want to learn humble you want to learn how to be humble is to be nominated for a hugo and then sit next to ursula at a bar while you both write your hugo speech <laughs> that's just like like she wins she gets on stage she slays and i'm like i hope i don't win no one knows i wrote this next to ursula but i'll know and i will <laughs> deliver this speech after she does and just no no. I mean, I would just hate to be in the next category. Just like, I, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you're not. You know, you're not going to top that. Yeah. Just don't even try. Exactly. <laughs> you, you just want to be like, yes, thank you. I appreciate this honor, and get the heck off the stage yeah. as quickly as possible. I mean, that was our plan, wasn't it? Because <laughs> we were pretty sure we weren't. We didn't need to. Pret- we didn't need to plan anything. Yeah, we had. We had no plan other than to like go up there and hopefully muddle our way through and make some sort of. <laughs> sense that we knew what we were talking about or belonged yeah, to be there actually, i think our plan was to like push rowena in front of us <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> make her say something intelligent i think i think what we're trying to say overall is everything in your life can be grist for the mill mm-hmm. everything from your racist uncle at thanksgiving to <laughs> that book you read to the person in front of you at the uh, coffee shop who's being a jerk to the barista or being a jerk to you. The the, the, the 16 turkeys in the road. I, I, I follow a creative coach online and, and her, her mail today was about the what the 16 turkeys in the road taught her. So she, she was trying to drive her daughter to preschool. There were 16 turkeys in the road and she wrote us about it. So she got a newsletter out of that. And I'm thinking, when was the last time I wrote my newsletter? So you, you got to take it. It comes everywhere. Apple Fitness, History Channel. No, not History Channel. History Channel is fiction, but you could probably take some stuff from that too <laughs> now. And, it, and if something occurs to you and you're worried it's too much like someone else, put it in a drawer or file the, the serial numbers off. We steal from each other all the time. But don't let it stop you. If you think of a really cool idea, don't think, I wish I'd thought of that. You think, Okay, well, what can I get out of that? Execution. Let's yeah. be honest. Execution is yeah. everything. Yeah, pretty much. It doesn't matter. How can I give it my particular weirdness? Oh, that, that sounds no much other better. Person is going to have. Yeah, that sounds much better than what I said. I did a thing with a playwriting group here where well, every year we would get do this exercise where we get three ingredients to put in a play on like Friday afternoon, and by Sunday afternoon we're supposed to have a ten minute play that uses these three ingredients. And even though you have that same like core starting point everyone is the same everybody's plays are just radically different and there's no you know it's amazing how many different things can come out of that same you know source of inspiration Mm -hmm. 
Actually, I, I run a um, mini workshop for some of my Patreon supporters. I call it the kick of the pants workshop because the rule is I give a writing prompt and they have either 30 minutes or a thousand words. It's not, I'm not trying to get them to write an entire story. I'm just trying to get them out of whatever rut they're in mm. to write something. And, and I've even said, you don't even have to write to the prompt. If the prompt reminds you of your sister who said something last week, who reminds you of something else, and that gives you a story idea, write that. I don't care. It's just a kick in the pants. And I think one of the things, one of the biggest things people have gotten out of that is this is just one prompt. And we get fantasy, horror, science fiction, so many different things. We get like really tense things. We get really funny things. And... I think they really get a lot out of the fact that we all wrote very different stories from one prompt. And um, I think more people need to learn that. I did something similar when I was uh, teaching at a community college. And, and this was an intro writing course. This is not people who thought of themselves as writers, but I made them do free writing just, and it wasn't graded. It was only graded for completion. Like do the thing, get the points. I don't right. care what it is. But I would use visual prompts. Um, because this was, it was largely online classes, so I'd, I'd give them, you know, a picture or something, and then have them share with the group. And it was amazing. I mean, the, the sheer range of things you would get out of the exact same photo. One that I thought was a fairly innocuous picture of people at, like, a county fair, I got some of the most amazing, like, five-minute horror stories. <laughs> like, this whole class's vibes were <laughs> were just, like... And it was wild. I was like, y'all are much more creative than you give yourselves credit for. You need to chase this down. Mm -hmm. like, you need to play with this some more. But it was always like that. It was just so fantastic to see how many different places they would go from all looking at exactly the same thing. And I just, I love that for them. It was so much fun. And I think it showed them too, like how many possibilities there were for even, you know, we'd, we'd take that and then have to do formal writing. But it's like, whatever the topic is, we need your spin. We need your voice. We need the view on it that only you can give because no other human has your exact set of experiences and personality markers and things that you think about. And that's always going to make it unique no matter what you're doing. And that was always, it was a fun thing. It was a fun thing to impart to, to these people who did not think of themselves as writers. It was really fun. Yeah. I, that sounds amazing. I, my thing is I, I think I think of it like when you get your, shirt and you put it on it fits it's your shirt it fits i think we think of the same we think of our writing in the same way it's like i'm making this story so it fits me so of course the murderer is obvious and of course these fantasy elements are telegraphed and 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 really really overdone and boring and we forget that like it's because this shirt fits us. Nobody else has put on this shirt before. And it might fit them. It might not. It might scratch them. We don't know. And But they're not going to know it and to anticipate. And now my shirt metaphor is kind of going away. But I'm still saying that I've had to remember this. In I've only been writing mystery for, well, God, I guess it's like eight years now. Now I feel old because I don't <laughs> did not think that was a long time. But uh, The last three years don't count. It's fine. <laughs> no kidding. So it's like I've only been writing mystery a short time, what feels like. And it's still hard for me to think this is not being telegraphed. This is not completely obvious. And because it's obvious to me, because I wrote it. I think maybe part of not writing is, is we use sometimes our not writing time to decide what is wrong with us and our careers and what our last project was and what our next project will be. And the fact that we're, if we ever wrote anything good, we're done. And if we haven't ever written anything good, we never will. And I think maybe sometimes to think nobody's inside my head and whatever I make, whether it's good or not, they're not going to anticipate. So lean into the fact that you're unique and go with that. Well, I think that's beautiful. Oh, thank that's you. That's fantastic. <laughs> I think that brings up a good point, too, about when when not writing time you sort of being in your own head too much, get, yeah. getting in your own way. And that's probably a good sort of like final topic for us to, to explore in this is how do you keep balance between the necessary non-writing writing and the things that are getting in your way, slowing you down, giving you excuses for, for not writing, all that stuff. Where do we find balance in that? 
I think she says, kind of wanting to hear the answer <laughs> because she feels like she's been doing a lot of it lately. <laughs> uh, well, can I, can I, can I, can I, can I start with a story? Always. Okay. So when, when I, when I started to write six wakes, basically I'd written two urban fantasies that it was one of those situations where everyone who read them loved them, but not a lot of people read them. And so I, I pitched some other ideas and one was a space murder mystery and that's what sold. And I'm like, Oh my God, I, I have not written either of these things and I haven't read a lot of mystery. So I was really worried at the time I was reading the expanse and I, it was my book is not like the my book takes place in space and there's some violence. That's what it has. That's what it has in is similar to the expanse. That's about it. But I was reading it and it was just going down and down and down further into the hole of I suck because I can't write how these two brilliant guys write. And I had to stop because I had to say this is not doing me any good. The expanse is a great series read it it's amazing but for now i i have to put it down and go to today where i uh i'm i won't say what because i'm paranoid that way but i'm i'm look i'm looking at a slightly newer uh genre for me and so i'm doing some research and i picked up a book about two days ago from that genre and i've been reading this book obsessively like like i did the thing the privilege thing if i got the audiobook and then i'm like this is going too slowly also i'm not driving now so i bought the ebook so i could keep reading and i read it voraciously and i loved it and i never once thought i'm terrible i can't do this i thought what can i learn from this and that has made me feel a lot better about the next project and i think we a lot of times we we we've especially when we get overwhelmed with emotions, we just feel like the world is acting upon us and we are helpless. And, but I have just like comparing these two things where one book brought me down and one book really brought me up. I mean, the common denominator is me. I, it's, it's how I need to be looking at it. And so in looking at my own emotional thing is like, if I'm not emotionally working out here, cut myself some slack and, and move on to something else don't let the, the reality, the emotions are not the reality. It's what I tell my podcast listeners. You might have a day where you write some awesome things and the next day you might feel like shit and still write awesome things. You just won't know it. You just won't think it. You're probably going to do pretty standard work every day, but you're going to feel differently about it because of how you feel every day. And so you got to learn to trust yourself. Like even if I feel like garbage today, I'm going to write at the very worst, I'll fix it or cut it on edits. And, you know, acknowledge your emotions, validate them, feel them, but know that they're not reality. And if they're too much, then step away from whatever is bringing you down. And if something brings you up, then hold on to that. But acknowledge that emotions are powerful and need to be acknowledged, but they're emotions. That's that's my that's my advice there. I did something the first half of this year that I think was sort of tangled up in some similar ways, which was like I'd gotten very in my head about like what my next project needs to be, what I need to be doing. Oh, okay, I need to figure out a new way to do this. I need to figure out how to be a tighter plot or I need a tighter, more efficient way of writing so that I can get something out. And I did a lot of things that felt like productive, not writing, writing. I was reading these craft books and I was doing all these exercises and I was going through all of this stuff. And I was miserable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I was making myself do all these things, thinking this will make me a better writer and I'll be better at this and it'll all be great. And it was not working. It was. I spent months and it was just like, it was not working. And I was not happy. Yeah. And eventually I had to take a step back and realize this is not working for you. It's not your process. And that's okay. Like you have written books before, not putting yourself through this tangle. Yes. You'll do it again. And it might take you a while. And that's, it's okay. You you don't have to put yourself through this ringer just for the sake of putting yourself through a ringer. And so I sort of took the summer off and just sort of stepped back from trying to draft at all. And I'm going to dive back in for Nano coming up because I always I love Nano Remo. And I'm going to do it having freed myself, I think, of a lot of these entanglements. Yeah. And I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what happens, but I know that I just like 
I got in my head too much. And it was doing things that felt productive, but weren't actually getting me any closer to a story that mattered. Yeah, I think um, something I've been having to come to terms with this year, and honestly, it is the slow heat death of Twitter that is bringing me to terms with it, which is if something doesn't work for you, it doesn't mean you're broken. It means the thing either the thing is broken or the thing isn't working for you. You don't have to choose to be the broken person. Like I've, I've, I felt like all my huge, my, my biggest following is by far Twitter by far. And I've been trying to, I don't think in terms of Instagram and I'm thinking in terms of blue sky because it's pretty much Twitter, but it's like, I've been trying to so I think about other social media just as an author trying to, you know, be present on the internet and so many things have not worked for me. And I've thought about what's wrong with me. And I think it was Gail Carriger who's like, no, they just don't work for you. You're not broken. You're not doing it wrong. It's just, it didn't work for you. And I, I, I think I have to realize that with, with craft books because I too, I love the craft books. They're going to fix all my problems. I can name two craft books that I've read that have made a difference in my life. And I refer to them constantly. And all the rest have just kind of either been like, well, shit, I know that. I just didn't say it as pretty as you did. Or (laughs) that's not going to work for me. And I just wasted money. And at some point, you have to start trusting yourself. I mean, I think a big part, I mean, I always struggle with craft books because, I mean, in no small part, because every craft book, in essence, is about how that writer the process they learned of how they write and it isn't transferable necessarily Mm -hmm. and those lessons that they're imparting you might be able to you know take something from that and add it to your own toolbox but half the time it's not particularly useful or it's just trying to be prescriptive about something that shouldn't be prescriptive i mean like adverbs are fine Stop saying don't use adverbs because that's dumb advice. And I don't know why people yeah. are like, you have to do yeah. that. I, I called out Stephen King at, at, at uh, New York Comic Con. Old. I did. Yeah. Well, I mean, every almost everybody quotes on writing as their favorite writing book. And I'm like, Stephen King says, don't use adverbs. He specifically says no adverbs. In misery. It's just terrible advice. In, it's terrible <laughs> advice. Adverbs are a tool, like every other. They're a part of speech. Yes, like just... <laughs> exactly. But what gets me is I was, re- I love a lot of early King. It's like, I recognize the problematic stuff, but I'm just like, you wrote this when you were how old? And it, it just entrances me. And I love rereading stuff. And I was rereading Misery. And he has a line in there. Where Annie Wilkes grabs Paul's leg, which has had the foot chopped off of it, and he pulls his leg, and his leg, quote unquote, slides footlessly from her hand. (laughs) The man who came up with the word footlessly wants you to not use adverbs, everyone. Do you you want to take his advice? Do you? No. Footlessly. (laughs) I mean, I wonder now. I really wonder. Did. Footlessly. Seriously. Did did the shame did the no adverbs come from the shame of that? The the only craft book I am currently like clasping to my heart is Chuck Wendig's recent release, Gentle Writing Advice. Mm. Because most of what it is is saying, like, hey, your process isn't gonna look like everybody else's, and that's okay. Yeah. And he actually has a whole chapter taking down advice like that. Oh, like good. he directly addresses the don't use adverbs things. He's like, No, adverbs are perfectly good words. Don't overuse them just like you don't overuse other types of but you know, like yeah, so it's just it's a it's a really nice one. I've got it. That's one I've got in print, ebook, and audio. Mm-hmm. So that anytime I see a little pick me up, I can like in some form or other just like grab it and nice. be like ah yes okay good thank you for reminding me that yeah <laughs> that this is all okay. I've been watching Foz Meadows TikToks and um, oh wow I think one <laughs> a lot of them they're brilliant they're brilliant like skewer other bad writing advice on TikTok. And one guy's like, add nothing to said. Add nothing ever. You're a shitty writer if you add any our other word to said or any other word than said or something. And Foz is like, are you telling me 
<laughs> that your book is better than every other book on my shelf because i guarantee if you go to any book on my shelf it's going to have a word other than said somewhere in it so you're somewhere. saying yeah. your rule is better than all of literature so i i, I recommend foz meadows tiktok if you just want to hear some colorful takedowns of uh both bad writing advice and bad gender takes so a lot of fun mm. wilmer this has been delightful this has been so much fun yeah you guys um, are fun too we are well over our usual hour, so we will wrap things up by, as is traditional upon this podcast, inviting you to give us some bit of trivia for the world that we are co-building live on this podcast and which is now the foundation of our uh, in-process anthology. What do you have for us? I just realized this might be too much because it's... I, I'm just going to say, let's let's say this is specific <laughs> to a we've place had, instead of... We've had some very, overall. very small ones and we've had some very, very overarching ones. You can go anywhere so There's a place in the world where um, armies like to go and have battles. It's a big flat field. It's I don't know. It's an army thing. And But when you leave bodies behind, they will sink into the soil and grow. And some people... There's one faction whose job it is to go in with flamethrowers and clear out everything that might be budding. And there's another faction who goes in to harvest. I don't know what they harvest. My grandmother wouldn't tell me, but I know they're there and that this field exists. So whether you're a harvester or a flamethrower, Godspeed. That's amazing. I love it. I feel like it is in conversation with, like, we have a lot of death traditions in this world. <laughs> Many guests want to give us death things, and I love it. So I, I love how, like, in competition, honestly, all these different death cults are going to be. That's true. World. That's true. They're going to be death cults. I mean, I, I still, so fun. I still love the 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 necromancy that raises bodies so they can so they can walk home after so wherever they, can they died. Walk itself back home to yeah. be buried. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah. What happens when they come across this field? That, that I, that's, that's there's a, a story there. That's a good question. There's a story there. Yeah. Somebody should write it. Someone should write it. Yeah. Get on that. Awesome. Well, Mert, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been super, super fun. Thank you for the invite. I really appreciate it. And I wish you guys luck on the Hugo ceremony that happened three weeks ago. <laughs> Can I say that? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.